You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 2022. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for being with us live from Washington, where President Biden is back in the White House today, just signed into law making Juneteenth a federal holiday, part of a shift in focus back to domestic issues that include the Affordable Care Act. After the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling today, left the law intact, and coming up we're going to talk about it with Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. We'll also hear from Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. As well, Laura Fink, Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications. And welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. As we turn our focus today to domestic politics, after following President Biden across half of Europe the past week, and to think we are still talking about Obamacare. That's because today the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act, rejecting a challenge by Republican-controlled states and the former Trump administration the court essentially ruled that they did not have the right to sue. Now, the White House is celebrating this ruling as a chance, they say, to expand the law, as President Biden promised on what was the 11th anniversary of Obamacare and held a speech that day in March. We're going to keep building until every American has that peace of mind and to show that our government can fulfill its most essential purpose, to care for and protect the American people. A story today from Bloomberg government says this ruling just reset the talking points for both parties. And we're joined to talk about it by Kyle Kondik, who's the managing editor of Sabado's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Kyle, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for having me. So challenges to the ACA helped Democrats win control of both chambers in recent elections. How about now? Uh, well, look, I mean, I, I don't think that there were many people on either side that, that really thought that this particular uh, court case was going to you know, dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think there may have been a little bit more drama with some of the previous rulings. But, you know, over the course of the Obama presidency, the uh, the Republicans really think made, made great political hay over 
uh, the Affordable Care Act. I think it was a key part of their victories in 2010 and 2014 and 2016. But then once they got into power in, you know, after the 2016 election, they, uh, you know, just were unable to actually repeal or, you know, or to really dramatically change the Affordable Care Act. And over time, the Affordable Care Act, I wouldn't say that it's immensely popular, but it became more popular once the Republicans took over the government in 2016 uh, and, and then failed to, to basically be able to get rid of it. And, and so I think that this, uh, I, you know, I don't necessarily know if this, this closes the books on legal challenges to the Affordable Care Act, because there could always be new ones that emerge. But, um, you know, it's been, it's been more than a decade. Republicans are trying to dismantle this thing. and They've just not been able to. Well, I guess that's my my question. That's where I'm going here, because while there was indeed much more drama surrounding prior rulings, the White House and Democrats are really seizing on this, like you said, to sort of close this chapter, although it's been about 11 chapters at this point. A statement from the White House after the ruling today says, after more than a decade of attacks on the Affordable Care Act through Congress and the courts, it's time to move forward and keep building on this landmark law. That That's the the take from Joe Biden, but Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it in his own way. The ACA is here to stay. And now we're going to try to make it bigger and better. Establish once and for all affordable health care as a basic right of every American citizen. So what are we talking about here? We saw an expansion, if you can call it that, an expansion of tax subsidies under the American Rescue Plan brought about by covid but we know the president does not support Medicare for all. He said that on the campaign trail, right? How would Democrats make this bigger? I mean, there's not, you know, it, it, as you mentioned, the, you know, Joe Biden kind of won the Democratic presidential primary in, in some ways by not going as far to the left as some of his rivals did. And, right. and you know, not supporting Medicare for all is a great example of, of, of that. Um, and also, you know, we, there's there's a whole there are a whole lot of different things that Democrats are trying to do with their slim majorities in Washington and their, uh, you know, kind of shaky control of, of both Congress and the White House. Uh, they're trying to do things on um, changing election laws. They're trying to do something on infrastructure that may or may not get bipartisan buy-in. Um, there are other, you know, things that they're trying to do. I don't think that healthcare, though, is necessarily, um, you know, a, a, a big issue that is kind of right in front of Congress right now. You know, it's, it was a different story in, you know, say 2017 when kind of the major focus of, of the, the early days of the Republican majority was doing something about the Affordable Care Act. You know, this time, yeah, this, this court ruling has put the ACA in the news, in the news today, um, but it's not like there's some huge fight going on in Washington right now or going on in Congress right now to do something about the ACA. And so when, when Democrats talk about they want to do more, I don't necessarily know specifically what that would be and um, whether there would, they would have the votes to even, to even do whatever they might want to do. Well, nothing works better in politics than being an underdog, right? If you look like you're struggling to make something better, does that help? Does that help when we head for the midterms? Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that uh, the ACA is going to be a huge issue in 2022. Um, also, even though we're, you know, we're hopefully coming out of this pandemic, um, you know, obviously, kind of public health is, is sort of a sort of an issue, but. Um, it may be that coronavirus is, is not necessarily a focus in the midterms because, again, we might be beyond it. And coronavirus is, isn't really the same as, uh, you know, as, as uh, health insurance coverage, which is what the uh, the ACA is all about. And, you know, I, I think if you look at some of the Democrats' policy priorities, 
Um, you know, it may be that the initial uh, you know stimulus bill, essentially that that the Democrats passed right after they took power, to, uh, to you know to address to, to address coronavirus and pump a bunch of money into the economy, which was a signature achievement, I think, if you're on the left. Um, but they did, they did that, and then I think they're sort of struggling to do more. Um, you know, in, in, in that that is with infrastructure and other things, and uh, you know, I, I just don't even know if they have, would have the votes to um, to do anything. You know, certainly they don't have they don't have votes for something like Medicare for all. And I mean, the president doesn't support it anyway. Amazing, eleven years later, how divisive this still is. The Kaiser Family Foundation found in its most recent survey, more than a decade later, again that Democrats, eighty-five percent, support. The ACA, while 77 percent of Republicans view it unfavorably, there's still very little agreement on this. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say that over time, um, approval of the ACA has gotten a little bit better. You know, part of that was um, and I think maybe we've got we have to see what what maybe maybe most recent data would say now that Biden is president. But sometimes what happens is that something becomes unpopular, um, you know, when it's passed and, and, you know, liberal policy idea like the Affordable Care Act um, is unpopular when there's a liberal government in place, which was the case when Obama was president. And then Donald Trump takes over. You've got a conservative government. And you see this with all sorts of different kinds of matters of public opinion that the public starts to sort of express more liberal uh, positions because there's a conservative government. Uh, and that you, you sort of saw that with approval of the Affordable Care Act, that it got a little bit better when Trump was in the White House. Uh, you know, I'm curious to see uh, how, how health care is viewed in the 2022 midterm uh, or through the 2022 uh, midterm lens. It's usually an issue that Democrats have kind of a, a, a party advantage on. You know, there's certain things that the Republicans usually have an advantage on taxes. Democrats often have it on health care, et cetera. Uh, you know, how, how, how are people going to view that in 2022? And are they actually going to view health care as a super pressing issue next year? It's quite possible that they won't. Kyle Kondik, managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. We thank you for being with us. I want to bring in Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, who was in the room, so to speak, for the beginning of this whole case. Hey, Rick, you were advising the late Senator John McCain at the time. That same week, he gave the thumbs down to the bill. Yeah, July 2017, 1.30 in the morning. Uh, We we finally uh, voted on the uh, skinny uh, reform that yeah. Mitch McConnell put on the floor uh, only a few hours earlier. No one had ever seen the bill. Uh, one of John's complaints, uh, he had just gotten back from uh, Arizona after, uh, after having brain surgery and, uh, and gave a speech to the floor of the Senate uh, to say, we really ought to be working together. We ought to be trying to do big reforms like health care you know, in a bipartisan fashion, and we should be using the rules of the Senate that were set up to have clear and open debate on these things called regular order. And he's like, if we have regular order, I'll support a process. Well, regular order turned into a 10 p.m. bill that no one had ever seen before hitting their desks and told, come and vote on it at midnight. And uh, John spoiled the party. He was uh, pretty intent on saying that he'd set this up a week earlier, said that he wasn't going to vote for reform if they hadn't taken it through regular order, and there was no way— he was going to to change his mind, but uh, that didn't stop the vice president from pulling him off the floor with a couple of other senators who were voting against it and giving his last minute pep talk, uh, which didn't have much impact. Uh, the vote, uh, historic as it was, uh, was the beginning of this uh, this whole exercise in suing over the individual mandate. 
pretty remarkable when you look back at how long this has been. I mean, yes, uh, 11 years, uncounted challenges, but this particular case uh, has gone on for months and months. Do you think before uh, we move on to infrastructure and some of the other issues pressing on Capitol Hill, Rick, in our, our remaining 30 seconds here, is this over? Is is Obamacare yeah, now going to move forward without the legal challenges? Yeah, certainly I think in a political context, it'll always be a, a, a ball to bat around uh, for Republicans and a, uh, a story to tell for Democrats, right? I mean, yeah. uh, as... Uh, as Kyle pointed out, I mean, there's a pretty big split uh, amongst parties. So, Doesn't sure, seem like it's that's not going, going away, away anytime yeah. soon. That's this is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. Now that we've made our way through the G7, the NATO summit, the meeting with Putin. Can you believe that was all in the last week? And things are now warming up again on Capitol Hill. The president's back, as we mentioned And the word bipartisan was actually said out loud this week as the House voted overwhelmingly, as you just heard from Charlie Pellet, 415 to 14 to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, move through the Senate. The president just signed it. And we're joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, as well as Laura Fink, Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications. Laura, it's great to have you on the program. Who says we can't agree on things? That's right. That's right. Is there a lesson to be learned from this Juneteenth law being signed, or did you see this happening? This was something that lawmakers felt they had to do. Well, I, I think you, you've got to be against slavery, and you've got to be for uh, for the elimination of it. So I, I think this is a rare point of agreement, but something yeah. that we should celebrate. And because uh, and I also think and I've, I've heard, talked to my Re- Republican colleagues and friends and and they also like to remind me that it was Republicans who are in more anti-slavery than Democrats. So we're playing a little political game, even in the bipartisanship, but um, all, all to the good with a good result. Fourteen uh, voted against it, Rick. How do you explain that? Maybe they just don't like days off. Um, you know, it's it's inexplicable, right? I mean, they must come from districts where uh, they think somehow they're going to gain some advantage for this. But, uh, you know, it's the environment we're in. I mean, there are a group of people any given day on any given party who just are going to be outside the mainstream of, of bipartisanship that would exist on a deal like this. So the days of uh, 100% uh, voting for one thing are, I think, uh, in, the, in the past. Yeah, well, it makes us all... Ask the same question. Can we agree on anything else? And now we consider the big three. Infrastructure, voting rights, and police reform. We'll start with infrastructure here. I'd like to get your take on this. A bipartisan plan in the Senate that we talked about a week ago has doubled its support now to 21 senators, 11 Republicans, 10 Democrats. But listen to Dick Durbin. This is just today. The Senate Majority Whip does not seem to have much hope. There has to be an assurance from the Democrats who are supporting it that they will be on board for reconciliation to fill in the gaps in the bipartisan package. Lori, it sounds like Charlie Brown going to kick the football. Well, it sounds like a message to Kristen Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin, and, and you have to have assurances that they would support reconciliation for things like child care and elder care, climate infrastructure, and the things that are missing from this very skinny bipartisan plan. Uh, we don't know that there's not a lot of room for error, not a lot of room to lose, lose senators like Bernie Sanders on the left. And so it remains to be seen. I like to call infrastructure the buffet of limited options. 
So <laughs> if you want bipartisanship, um, th- this may be the direction you have to go. But if you want a, a full package, including a, a corporate tax hike, um, and a number of other things. You might have to go to the budget reconciliation. But again, we know Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema will be calling some shots here. Uh, still it. a number of options on the table. Republican Senator Jerry Moran, uh, Kansas, is one of those in the bipartisan group, as I mentioned, 21 strong now. He says he does not want Democrats to go it alone. My hope, and one of the reasons I'm involved in this effort, is that I hope that we are able to avoid reconciliation. I hope we're uh, uh, able to avoid eliminating the filibuster. Uh, And I hope that we're going to spend less money than what the current proposal is by the Biden administration. That's quite a list there, Rick Davis. Uh, Does he need to watch Charlie Brown? Hope is not a strategy. I mean, we tell these guys that all the time. Quit saying hope. Uh, Take it from a consultant. Yeah, no, look, I, th- I, I think this is great. I mean, like, it, we're going to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. I, since when was that a small amount of money? Um, you know, we've talked about infrastructure for five years and, and haven't seen a peep of activity. And now we've got Republicans dogpiling on the rabbit. I mean, 11 votes, that's, 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 that's uh, a, a, a blockbuster amount of Republicans. And, and I think it's really interesting that the Democratic leadership now are basically turning inward into their caucus saying, now, listen, you've got to stick with us on some of these other things. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the trade is done. I think we're going to get infrastructure. And, uh, and then the question is, you know, do you have votes for reconciliation? But you, you can't get too serious about linking the two. Declare a victory. Take the infrastructure win. It's going to buy you a lot of great votes in 2022 if you're the Democratic Party. Yeah. And, uh, and then go haggle out the rest of the bills. Laura, what do you think about that strategy? Well, I mean, I think you can't eliminate climate change from the conversation and the corporate tax rate hike. I think those are, you know, th- these are concessions that within the bipartisan deal are, are anathema to some, some some Democrats, in fact, and a lot of the American people. So we're really, you know, we, we like to watch the play-by-play on how the sausage gets made. What it will all will include um, it remains to be seen. But I, I think... You know, Joe Manchin's under a lot of pressure to get something done, and he may not get everything his way. The left won't get everything their way. I, I think we'll see something a little bit different than this $1 trillion. It's, it's half of the first uh, set of elements of Biden's infrastructure package. That's a, that, that's a huge concession for a party that has the White House and both houses of Congress. I, I think we'll see some movement before it gets done, but I agree it will. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday. Are people going back to the office where you work? You stuck in traffic right now? In some places, the answer is no. And the question, of course, remains why. People have been arguing about this. Whether it has to do with unemployment benefits, COVID, vaccines. And the CEO of Bank of America shed some light on this today as corporations begin taking control of this idea. In this case, Brian Moynihan says he wants all vaccinated workers back in the office by September. And he talked about it with Bloomberg's David Weston. As more people get vaccinated, we keep bringing more back. We've got a lot of work to get those back. But the view is after Labor Day, our view is all the vaccinated teammates will be back and we'll be able to operate fairly normally. And we'll then start to make provisions for the other teammates as we move through the fall. After Labor Day, you're vaccinated, you're back at work. Everyone else will have a plan for you soon. And a lot of companies are doing this. As we try to figure out how to get the workforce back, and we're joined right now, by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis as well, Laura Fink, Democratic strategist, founder and CEO of Rebel Communications. This program, Bloomberg Sound On, has been live from three different cities over the last week. We started in New York. I was with you from Boston the end of last week. 
And, of course, now we are ensconced deep inside the Beltway here in Washington, D.C. All three cities seemed very different to me. And having an opportunity to have this contrast with three cities, three days, really opened my eyes to the different pacing that we're seeing, even within the Amtrak corridor here. New York is stuck in traffic. You heard Ed Kalegi. People are going back. The offices may not be full, but the city is beginning to return. Same could be said for Boston, maybe a little bit less. Here in Washington, D.C., I'm in this, living this apartment on the highway. I haven't seen rush hour happen yet. I get on metro trains. They're mostly empty. And I wonder, Rick Davis, if you're seeing this as well, you live in the capital city, and it's been a little bit of a ghost town lately. The big question is why? Yeah, I think uh, you point out the really amazing thing. Washington is a nightmare for uh, traffic usually, and frankly, it's been heavenly. (laughs) If this is Washington (laughs) in the future, I'm all for it. Um, You know, look, I think that it's a combination of things. I think, one, um, Washington, D.C. had pretty punitive stay-at-home measures, uh, and they lasted a little bit longer than some. Uh, There's been more focus on the public health uh, debate inside of Washington than anywhere else in the, in maybe the world. Yeah. Uh, and so that has a salutary effect maybe on some employers. Uh, and I would also say, and it's just a, a, no statistics behind it or anything, but you know, there was a lot of urban unrest in Washington, DC throughout last summer during COVID and a lot of, a lot of businesses, you know, boarded up, shut down. And until COVID was completely over, they weren't going to reopen. So there's a bigger impact, I think, mm-hmm. in that regard than, than in some of the other places around the country. Laura, I think we've heard uh, from primarily Republicans, uh, but also some Democrats who say that the unemployment benefits that have been layered in COVID are paying people more than they'd make if they were working. And therefore, they're going to stay home and collect the checks until they stop. Others say, no, there's a fear a public health concern, a fear of COVID, and people may not be comfortable riding public transportation or even working in an office with potentially unvaccinated people. Where are you on this? Well, I'll go back to sort of polling that's been done on this and that over 50% of people would like some kind of hybrid work where possible. Obviously, we know in all jobs that's not true, but in office jobs it certainly could be. And and then you've got 75% of executives and HR professionals that want everybody back in the office. So there's a, there's a uh, sort of intersection of, of two differing opinions here. I think that robust workplaces will be a little bit flexible as they move back. And they'll not just like, you know, like the head of Morgan Stanley that said he's going to penalize and cut pay for workers that want to continue to work remotely. Uh, instead, try the carrot approach. Maybe pay workers a little bit more. Uh, maybe incentivize them to come back into the office, back onto the job. Uh, we are seeing, even in this, in this labor market, workers have a little bit more leverage with employers and, and I think that's a good thing. Raise wages, help the middle class, help the spending, ultimately grow the economy. Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan again speaking with Bloomberg. You're seeing the, unemployment, the employment market tighten. If you ask our small business customers, last fall, their number one issue, pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. This spring, number one issue, getting people to work and supply chains. That's a whole different place, and that means inflation characteristics are out there to be filled. But is it temporary? Is it transitory? Um, And there'll be a great debate about that. That's the sound of optimism to me, uh, Rick Davis. The unemployment market is tightening. The fact is, though, when the benefits expire, most people will not have a choice. That's right, Joe. I think you point out a really important thing. Those benefits are still being paid to unemployed 
workers uh, uh, through uh, September. And so until you see that run out, you're really not going to have a firm fixed opinion on whether or not those payments were actually stopping or encouraging people not to return to the, the workforce. We still have over 10 million people unemployed. And, and so I think it's one of the things that you're seeing in these numbers that we've been, you know, wild gyrations in the uh, unemployment numbers over the last three months, uh, because uh, we have sort of an artificial uh, safety net right now for unemployment. And until those numbers dry up, until that, that, that weekly paycheck uh, uh, stops coming from uh, Uncle Sam, I think you're going to see how much of an impact these stay-at-homes have been having. Strikes me that it's another case where corporations are setting the way forward on this, Laura, and not government policymakers. Well, I, I think that that's because there aren't a lot of regulations on, on corporations around workers. Like I said, they could pay workers more and then they'd come back in now. I think that, that while we can, we can talk about these unemployment benefits, but the economists are saying that's not necessarily the driver. In fact, our tourism industry, other industries, we're still warming up here and aren't in, in full flow. So um, there's a little bit to, said, to be said for both. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You see that launch today? SpaceX put a new GPS satellite for the Space Force into orbit. You heard it on Bloomberg Radio as it happened today in Cape Canaveral. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition and liftoff. Go Falcon, go GPS. It was a beauty. The first stage landed gently back on the barge and a beautiful launch. Vehicle is pitching down range. But these launches have become commonplace. Do you take it for granted now? SpaceX, a private company, has also carried humans, of course, to space and back. Not that long ago, a far cry from where we were just a couple of years ago when we had to pay Russia for rides to space. We're joined now by former NASA astronaut Tom Jones, who flew on four shuttle missions and also served on the NASA advisory board. Welcome, Tom, to Bloomberg Sound On. Hi, Joe. Pretty exciting news. Sure is. And there's a lot to talk about here. Civilians in space, a major advance. My gosh, we're going to be going on vacation in space apparently soon enough. But we could also be headed for a new space race. Just this week, Russia and China unveiled plans for a joint international lunar research station. Tom, what are we in for here? Right. The uh, Chinese want to be a major space power because they think that proves their status on the world stage. And so they're looking for partners to uh, join them on the surface of the moon. I think that they expect to be there by about 2030. 
So this would, of course, be their first trip to the moon. We did it in 1969, mm-hmm. but we haven't been back since 72, and I think it's a, it's a competition that's real. Uh, the, the U.S. is trying to get back to the surface of the moon to show that we still have the technological edge over the Chinese, and that's being played out on this uh, world or even outer space stage. They all kind of tie in. There's just so much happening here with regard to civilian space exploration. Now working with the government, NASA, of course, is far ahead on this, but we couldn't do it without the civilians. And I wonder how that plays into our future space program. If we have China and Russia on the moon, will SpaceX still be playing a role in this? I think there's two parts to the to the answer. I think the commercial space sector is vital for NASA's future health and progress. Um, we're turning over all the low Earth orbit nearby operations to commercial entities under under just service contracts, and that's great. It's very reliable. Uh, they've taken on the routine tasks that NASA, um, you know, perfected back in the 60s and 70s. Now we're moving out to the the frontier, 240,000 miles away from Earth, where NASA is still going to be carrying the water, uh, taking the lead on the high technology needed there. Um, I think this is a real edge for the U.S. We've got this vital commercial space sector that provides innovation and lower costs, and we're competing with governments in China and in Russia, and I think we have a, an innovation edge because of that. Uh, we're more flexible, we're more, more versatile, we have reusable systems like SpaceX's, so this is a real plus for us. But I, uh, no matter where we go, whether it's the moon or Mars, to your point, we are going to need that commercial sector helping us because they provide cargo hauling. They provide um, a robust transportation to the space station, and that will help us springboard out beyond. Tom, we're also joined this hour by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, who's had his eye on the space program on space policy for many years here. And Well, Rick, you know you couldn't get arrested trying to talk about this not that long ago. When you add the excitement of civilian uh, involvement here and when you add the element of competition from other countries, now suddenly everybody wants to have a space program here in the U.S. Is the White House ready for that? Well, I, I think the White House is uh, looking forward to it. I'm not sure they're ready, uh, but I do know the other agencies like NASA and the Defense Department have been in hopes of this kind of burgeoning explosion of space activity for some time. I mean, these are all you know, very synergistic agencies that, uh, you know, as assets grow, you know, the number of launchers, the number of people in the satellite business, you know, whether it's these GPS satellites or the low Earth orbit uh, that are proliferating right now, mm-hmm. it's it's all really healthy for, for this industry. And I think there are new ways that people are finding to monetize it. So whether it's private or public sector, uh, I think it's very positive. And frankly, right now, if the uh, White House just sort of gets out of the way and lets this industry grow, it'll be positive for all their fronts. Tom Jones, I have long said that people will not take space for granted if they see a Chinese flag or a Russian flag on the moon, recalling those early images of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and say, wait a minute, we thought that was ours. That was supposed to be our moon. And I wonder to what extent this becomes, and maybe this is a concern of yours, maybe not, but what this extent this becomes a military operation. There's so much talk. We've got a space force now, space security. Even this week, NATO acknowledged the fact that space could be a new frontier for military activity. Is that inevitable? I think it's it's inevitable because our competitors, uh, China, is has a human space cr- program run by their military, and most of their the details of the engineering are, are secret under their um, their military service. So if you sit back, 
the Chinese are going to get to the moon about 2030, and the people that are going to be on the moon are Chinese military service members, and they're going to control the access to the moon and its resources. So what we want to do is be there first with our Western partners and apply to the lunar surface and to the resources on the nearby asteroids, for example. We want to apply Western standards of law and contracts so that business can take place under the open legal system that we have and enjoy in the West. And that's what's at stake here, losing access to those resources under a good, open legal system that everybody understands and can compete in. So, Rick Davis, maybe uh, people should not be laughing about Space Force. Where, where are you on this? This could become an essential component to our military. Yeah, I think that uh, it's really important right now uh, under those kinds of circumstances where you have competition, especially with a rival peer like China. Um, uh, it now makes so much more sense. But I must admit, I was one of those people who when the uh, Donald Trump first mentioned it. I thought, you know, it was uh, it was a joke, but it's no joke. Uh, that's the next frontier. As you point out, there's a lot of patriotism involved in the space program, and that's not going to uh, dissipate. It, it will be one thing that can also unify the American public. Tom Jones, you flew on four shuttle missions, as I mentioned. You've spent an enormous amount of time in space, always in peace, always a civilian mission. When we saw a civilian rocket today, though, this SpaceX rocket, bring a satellite to space for the military, that's not uncommon. But would that continue if this heated up into a military standoff between the U.S. and other countries, this, the element of civilian involvement? The military, for its entire history of activity in space, has always bought rockets from its major contractors. And they, those companies like Lockheed Martin, like a Boeing, like McDonnell Douglas in, in the 90s, they were, they were the ones who fired the rockets with military pay payloads on top. That hasn't changed. So you can ex expect to see contractors working for the military and providing these rockets. The government's going to own the asset up in space, the GPS satellite or the, the reconnaissance uh, vehicle or an imaging or early warning satellite. That's where the government will, will still control the hardware. And NASA, for example, will still um, operate with some of its traditional contractors, even as it contracts out for services. You know, hey, throw two tons into space for me as a, as a contracted service. So no big change there. And I think that this is good. It's going to be a lower price for the taxpayer with these commercial firms competing for the government's business. Do you agree with that, Rick? Should we continue to do business with civilian contractors, even as space edges into a military sphere? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the things that uh, actually a lot of members in Congress have been fighting for. John McCain uh, almost forced the Defense Department to start accepting SpaceX uh, rides. And uh, now we look back and we think it's pretty routine. But uh, it was only a few years ago that the military was resistant to you know, new space contractors, not the sort of military-industrial complex guys that are used to giving them rides to space. So I think the more competition out there is exactly what Tom was saying. It's going to reduce costs, good for the taxpayer, and, uh, and, and create a whole new industry out of, uh, out of commercial space. And that advances America's space program at large, whether it's NASA, whether it's civilian, whether it's military. Tom Jones would you go back as a civilian? You've been up four times. Would you trust a private company to bring you back to space? Uh, of course I would, and you know that's happening right now. This year we're going to see private space missions flown on SpaceX vehicles, and I would love to be a part of that as long as I didn't have to go through the two and a half years of training that it took me to get ready for my previous flight. <laughs> or the $20 million, apparently, Rick, that you have to spend in an auction. They ride up there with Jeff Bezos or whomever else. Virgin Galactic says they're ready to go as well. You ready, Rick? first radio show from space. It would be excellent. 
boy, we've had dreams about that, haven't we? Imagine the first remote broadcast, although I guess Tom Cruise is going to be up there eventually. Uh, there's so much to cover here and, and a heck of a lot to talk about with the future of space. Tom Jones, appreciate your time with us. A NASA astronaut on four shuttle missions served on the NASA Advisory Board and helping to advise us on this story today. Thanks for coming along. Rick, You're what's welcome. next for the Biden administration when it comes to space? Well, I think that uh, it's going to be a, a look into the military side because, as Tom pointed out, I mean, this is this is no joke. Uh, we're in a competition with China both on Earth and in orbit. And and so what are their plans going to be uh, as they continue to move toward uh, a lunar program, you know, uh, on the moon? And, and then you, you, we've heard it from this administration. They have great ambitions to be on Mars. And so it wouldn't sh- surprise me that there aren't more public-private uh, initiatives to, to try and harvest a, uh, a, a more significant space program around Mars. Sounds like we need to get our Space Force T-shirts and hats over here at some point. Rick, thank you. Rick Davis, Bloomberg politics contributor and a regular here, of course, on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, and we thank you for spending part of your Thursday with us here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.